And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. God, please help us now. Help me as I preach and help us now as we listen. We pray your blessing over this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, as Jesus made his way through uh, into Caesarea Philippi on his way to Jerusalem, he asked his disciples maybe the most important question that's ever been uttered. Who do people say that I am? And there were all sorts of opinions about Jesus then, just like there are all sorts of opinions about Jesus today. Some thought that he was like the prophet Elijah. Some thought that he was John the Baptist come back from the dead. But Jesus asked the all-important question, Who do you say that I am? And Peter responded, You are the Christ. You're, You're the Messiah. You're the Savior that Israel has been waiting for. Peter recognized that Jesus had come from God and that he was the fulfillment of God's promise to send the anointed one who would lead God's people. The the Jewish people believed that the Messiah would come from God and that he would liberate Israel from Roman oppression. And although Peter's confession was true, what he didn't understand is that the Messiah was not only divine, but that he had come to suffer and to die. Jesus came not to liberate Israel from Rome, but to liberate God's people from sin and death. So in verse 31, Jesus began to correct their misconceptions by plainly telling the disciples that he would be be rejected, that he would suffer and ultimately be killed, and then he would rise from the dead. But this did not align with Peter's vision for how he thought things ought to go. Peter expected that as they entered Jerusalem, there would be a parade, that that troops would be rallied, and that the Roman soldiers would run in all directions, terrified as Jesus the Messiah called down thunder from heaven. Peter could not possibly see how Jesus' suffering and dying could be part of God's plan. So he rebuked Jesus. 
Can you imagine that? That's the same word that's used for when Jesus cast out demons. Jesus rebuked demons. In the same way, Peter rebukes Jesus. So this wasn't a calm little powwow. Peter tried to take Jesus to task. He took Jesus aside and said, Jesus, stop that negative talk. God's will for your life is not to suffer and die. You need to stop thinking negatively and think more positively, Jesus. That's not how God works. You see, Peter did not have a problem with believing that Jesus was his Savior. Peter's problem came with believing that God's will entails suffering. Jesus explained to Peter that not not only must he as the Messiah suffer and die, but if anyone wants to be his follower, they too must take up their cross. We're, We're the same way. We're a lot like Peter. I think the majority of the people in this room would say that you believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. The primary challenge or trouble for the church today is not in believing in Jesus' death and resurrection, but in becoming like Jesus in His death and resurrection. We are quick to embrace the Christ who died on the cross, but we are reluctant to embrace the cross of Christ. So this morning, I want us to be confronted by what Jesus has to say because I think that we're in the same boat as Peter. We need to understand the true nature of discipleship. The main point of the the sermon this morning is that Christians are called to believe in Jesus' death and resurrection and to become like Jesus in His death and resurrection. Christians are called to believe in Jesus' death and resurrection and to become like Jesus in His death and resurrection. We're going to look at Jesus' cross, why it's necessary and what it accomplished, and then we're going to look at the disciples' cross why it's necessary and what it leads to. So in response to Peter's ill-advised rebuke, Jesus turned to the disciples and he rebuked Peter. And he charged him with thinking from a worldly perspective rather than God's perspective. He said, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You know, when you look at it on the surface, Peter's admonition seems right. It even seems loving, doesn't it? Like, God doesn't want you to suffer. It's not God's will for you to have pain. These words seem compassionate and loving. But Jesus' response, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. That's That's not Jesus just being extra harsh. You see, Jesus knows exactly whose voice this is. He sees right through it. It's the same temptation that Satan tried in Luke chapter 4 in the wilderness. All three times, the temptation of Satan to Jesus in the wilderness was serve yourself. Serve yourself. You don't need to suffer. Why starve? Just turn these stones into bread. Use your power to serve yourself. Why hide your true identity and suffer the ridicule of all these mockers and unbelievers? Just jump off the temple mount and watch everyone marvel as angels catch you, Jesus. Why go through the suffering of the cross to be exalted, Jesus? Just bow down and worship me and I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. Serve yourself. Jesus resisted the devil. And then in Luke 4.13 we read, When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. This was another one of those opportune times. 
through an unwitting Peter, Satan was tempting Jesus to have the crown without the cross. He was tempting Jesus to use his power to serve himself. Now, of course, Peter didn't realize he was actually tempting Jesus to go against God's will. Peter meant well. That's why Jesus corrected Peter and told him, you're thinking from a worldly perspective, Peter. You're not thinking from God's perspective. Jesus had not come to serve himself, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus knew that his death was necessary to create new life. He said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Peter didn't understand that this was the only way for anyone, including him, to be saved. The only way that sin could be atoned for is through the blood of Jesus. Because we've sinned against a perfectly holy God, our sin debt is infinite. Our transgressions are so egregious that the debt we owe to God could never be paid back. Now maybe you, you think to yourself, but pastor, I'm, I'm not that bad. I haven't, done, <laughs> I haven't done anything terrible. But let me just share with you, you are much worse than you think. Every one of us has rebelled against God by tossing aside His rules and refusing to submit to His reign. This is not just anyone that you've sinned against. This is the one true God who created you and gives you the very breath that you are drawing right now. And you have broken His commands repeatedly. You find pleasure and entertainment in the things that His soul hates. And you have spurned Him to go and to serve other gods. Friends, your sin is far worse than you could ever imagine. This is why the blood of of animals could never cleanse from sin or remove the guilt of sin. our, Our good works can never remove the guilt of sin. We cannot undo what has been done. We cannot repay what we owe. Apart from God's grace, we are helpless. We need a Savior. We need a substitute sacrifice in our place. Only the blood of Jesus is precious enough to pay the debt that we owe. And this is what makes the cross of Christ so magnificent and so glorious. On the cross, God's love for sinners was put on full display. Jesus died on the cross to pay that sin debt for everyone who trusts in Him. He paid it in full. Though our sins are red like scarlet, He will make us white as snow. This is good news. And Jesus' death led to his resurrection and to his exaltation. He's alive. And by faith in him, we are united to him in his death and resurrection. His death for sin has become our death. Our judgment day happened at the cross. Our sin debt was nailed to the cross with Christ if you've trusted in Him. And we're united to Him in His resurrection as well. Because Jesus is alive, we have new spiritual life now, and we will have new resurrected bodies later upon His return. This is what the cross of Christ has accomplished. Peter couldn't see how the cross could possibly be part of God's will. 
But without the cross, there would be no resurrection and no glory. Have you trusted in Jesus? Are you, are you placing your faith in Him or in your own works to get you into heaven when you stand before God? Because as we've already seen, your works are not going to be sufficient. There's nothing you can do to satisfy the righteousness of God. You need the blood of Jesus to cover your sin. It's the only way. If you haven't done that, I would invite you to do so today. But I need you to know that it's costly. Jesus took the opportunity to explain to the crowd and to his disciples that not only must he suffer, but anyone who wants to follow him must suffer as well. Christians are called to believe in Jesus' death and resurrection and to become like Jesus in his death and resurrection. Look again with me at verses 34 to 36. Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? So to ensure that no one mistakenly this only applies to the disciples, Mark is careful to point out in verse 34 that Jesus called the crowd to him with his disciples. So these conditions for discipleship are for every Christian, not just for extra committed ones. Come on, brother. Jesus said that following him means denying self and taking up your cross. To, to deny self is to renounce the self as primary. It's to remove the self-will from the throne of your life. And to take up your cross means to submit to Jesus. It means putting him there in the place of self-will on the throne of your heart. Christy Gambrell is an author, and she points out that crucifixion was reserved in the Roman Empire for those who had rebelled against authority. And the symbol of a criminal carrying their cross to the place of their execution was the ultimate symbol of submission. It showed that the condemned person who had once rebelled was now completely conquered. So Jesus' call to take up our cross is a call to former rebels to live in complete submission to him, to take self-will off the throne and to put Jesus on it. That's what it means to deny yourself and to take up your cross. Except that our death march does not lead to death, but to life. As we lose our lives for Jesus' sake and the gospel, we save them. Denying self and taking up our crosses isn't about asceticism or trying to punish your body. The call to take up our cross is a sustained willingness to say no to oneself in order to be able to say yes to God. It's a sustained willingness to be able to say no to yourself in order to be able to say yes to God. In reality, saying no to self and yes to God is saying no to lesser fleeting pleasures and saying yes to a greater and abiding pleasure in God. Losing our lives for Jesus' sake leads to life. Mm -hmm. And Jesus says here that, yes, it's true, you can avoid the pain of the cross, but you will forfeit your soul. Hmm. You can cling to your life now, but you will lose it later. There are some of you who have never taken up your cross. Like Peter in 
Mark 8, 27, you profess faith in Jesus, but you balk at the idea of taking up your cross. There is no wide gate and easy path that leads to heaven. Jesus' words in verses 34 and 35 are a call to reorient the entire aim of our lives. If you live for yourself now, if you store up treasure on earth, you will perish along with that treasure. If you lose your life now, if you store up treasure in heaven, you will have everlasting life and incalculable reward in heaven. Mm -hmm. Orienting your life around yourself or or anything other than Christ and the gospel indicates that you do not have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. So let me share with you a bit of my story. For 24 years, I lived as a nominal Christian. I made a confession of Jesus as the Christ, like Peter did in Mark 8, but I did not understand what that entailed. I grew up in a church culture. I knew all the right words. I knew all the right Bible stories. I wasn't that bad of a person, honestly. I mean, I got into some trouble when I was a kid, but generally I tried to do the right thing. But I was willing to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah who could save me, but I was not interested in suffering with him. Mm. And one day, after coming under the conviction of sin, I read these words in Mark 8, 35, where Jesus said, if, if you cling to your life, you will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And I realized I was clinging to my life. I was trying to remain in control. I wanted to have my cake and eat it too. I did not want to lay on the altar the things that I loved in the world and about the world. But I also didn't want to go to hell. I realized that the whole point in following Jesus is believing that these things I've been so unwilling to give up cannot give me life. They've actually been keeping me from life. So I laid them down, and I've never been the same since then. And I'm still learning how to take up my cross, but I've burned the ships. There's no turning back for me. If that's you today, I want to urge you to stop clinging to your life. What do you have if you gain the whole world and you forfeit your soul? What's worth continuing to cling to? What's worth your eternity? What's worth your soul? Nothing. No position, no respect, no power, no possession. Nothing is worth clinging to to forfeit your soul. This life is just a vapor. Let me urge you to think about the gravity of eternity for a moment. One day soon, you are going to stand before Almighty God. Every single person here. You will stand before Almighty God. It could be tonight as you sleep. Death could come for you. Or Jesus could come back for his church tonight. Or maybe it will be in 50 years. Either way, it's a blip compared to eternity. And on that day, you are going to pass on either into everlasting life or into everlasting torment. Mm. And there will be no second chances. And the sound of the regretful gnashing of teeth on that day for those who did not heed this warning will be a terrible, terrible sound. Mm. Do not let your pride get in the way. No matter where you are, no matter what it costs you, no matter how costly it is to give up whatever possessions or position or anything that you might have, if it's standing in the way of you and Jesus, lay it down this morning. Salvation is offered to you today. Everlasting life. Please do not spurn it. 
Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Even if you've called yourself a Christian your entire life, even if you're a member of this church, if you recognize that this word is for you this morning, then I'm pleading with you, don't pass it by. If you know that the Spirit of God is exposing hypocrisy in your heart, then do not delay. Please call out to God. And then come and talk to one of us after the service so that we can help you begin to follow Jesus. For those who have trusted in Christ, who have determined not to cling to your lives, we still face a daily decision to take up our crosses. Not just daily, but hour by hour, moment by moment. We face dozens, if not hundreds of decisions each day to take up our cross or to gratify the flesh. And I don't know about you, but I've noticed in my life, we have a tendency to either grumble under the cross or to run from it. Some of us just try to avoid the cross altogether. Well. One of the obvious ways we do this is in evangelism. And Jesus makes that connection for us in this passage. In verse 38, he says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Hmm. This isn't a randomly placed verse. Come on, brother. Jesus knows that identifying ourselves with him publicly will lead to scorn and to suffering. So one of the ways we avoid the cross is by avoiding evangelism or by avoiding the parts of Jesus' words that we find embarrassing. You know, we just kind of like put those to the side. We don't bring those out in public. Kind of like that embarrassing family member you don't want to be seen with. We treat Jesus like that sometimes, don't we? In public. But we cannot run from the cross and follow Jesus. We also grumble under the cross. Yeah. One of the areas of my life where God has exposed this recently has been with my children. So those of you, many of you know, we adopted three children internationally over the summer at once. We went from zero to three. Say that again. <laughs> <laughs> Not one at a time. All together. All together. When we made the decision to adopt three orphans, we knew that it was going to be a taking up of our cross. Mm. We knew that God, would, that God calls us to care for the least of these We felt a conviction that since we have the means and the ability to do so, that love compelled us to say yes. And we knew that it would mean laying down comforts to say yes to love. We just had no idea how truly painful it would be. And I confess that I have not always handled it well. God has exposed much sin in me. I think my wife would say the same thing. I'm going to try to make it through this part. You got it. All right, brother. You got it. I've often grumbled under this cross. Our house is often chaotic. My children don't understand what's happening in their lives and worlds have been turned upside down and they're not particularly grateful. (laughs) They're not particularly respectful. These are understatements if you're not picking that up. I discovered a few months ago that what I thought I needed was obedient children in an orderly home to be happy. (laughs) And when my children got in the way of that with their behavior, what came out of me was anger to try to force change. They were standing in the way of what I thought I needed, the orderly home I thought I needed, the obedient children I thought I needed, and so my anger came out on them. Because I was not submitting to the cross Jesus had called me to bear, I could not love my children like I needed to. One, of the, one important principle I've, I've learned is that it is impossible to love people if we view them as an obstacle to what we think we need. Come on, brother. 
It's impossible to love people if we view them as an obstacle to what we think that we need. I thought I needed a calm home and obedient children, but what I really needed was Jesus. To know him more. To become more like him. It was only when I recognized this that I was able to love my children and have a joy and peace that are sustained even when the chaos doesn't stop. Come on, brother. Sharing in Jesus' sufferings has multiple resurrection-like effects in our lives. Mm. I think I'll share a, a couple of those with you. First, when we share in Jesus' sufferings, we actually draw even nearer to him. Because you see, we serve a God who's not aloof and distant. He entered into our suffering and brokenness. He knows exactly what it's like. I don't care what you're going through. Jesus knows what it is. He's felt it. He's not distant. He's not emotionally detached. We have a God who shares with us in our weakness. He knows it all. And when we share in his sufferings, we actually get to draw even nearer to him. In our sufferings, we also become more dependent on him. Like Paul's thorn in the flesh, sharing in Jesus' sufferings makes us more aware of our own weakness and more dependent on him. And then we also become more like him as we share in his sufferings because through these, through these sufferings, he refines us and he sanctifies us. He weans us off the things of the world that we're so apt to depend upon. Jesus knew that I needed to learn how to love people who won't give me anything in return because he wants to make me holy so that I can spend eternity with him in the new heavens and the new earth. So while dying with Jesus is painful, the resurrection is worth it. This is why, if you ever thought about verses like James 1, 2, and 3, you've probably heard this verse before. He says, count it all joy when you meet with trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That's, that's what James is talking about. If you have all that you need in Christ, then you can be disappointed when hardship comes, but it doesn't need to break you. Come on, brother. This is where Paul's paradoxical, we're sorrowful yet always rejoicing comes in. It's not that Christians are called to live with our heads in the clouds, not feeling any pain or being unaffected by tragedy in our lives. No, Jesus, remember, Jesus wept at Lazarus's tomb, knowing that he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Jesus felt the sting of disappointment and rejection and loss. But Jesus also knew that death leads to resurrection. We have a confident hope that God is going to restore all things, that these light momentary afflictions really are preparing an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So we don't need to run from the cross or grumble under the cross that he's called us to bear. Our, our, our trouble is that we're too much like Peter in Mark chapter 8. Our minds are not set on the things of God, but on the things of man. That's right. We immediately assume whenever we find ourselves in some difficult trial or difficult situation, uh, God can't work at the, in this. This hurts. There's no way this is good. I've got to get out of this situation. I've got to get out. And we start desperately looking for ways out. And we start desperately trying to, to go to other sources of comfort and other sources of escape besides God. Because we think there's no way this could be a part of his will. Come on, brother. And so we'll use anger or we'll run or whatever we've got to do to get from out from under the cross. And if we can't get out, then we get bitter and we grumble and we question God's goodness. That's right. But friends, God repeatedly produces resurrection in ourselves 
and in others through our dying. Just There's so many examples throughout the Bible. I want to remind you of one. Think about Paul in Acts chapter 16. Paul goes to Philippi with Silas, and he's falsely accused after he casts a demon out of a slave girl who was being used for money. So he died to self to love a girl that was being trafficked. He gets falsely accused and beaten and thrown into jail. So he's dying by being falsely accused. He's dying by being beaten and thrown into jail. But in jail, instead of grumbling or raging at the authorities, what does he and Silas do? They start singing hymns of praise to God. Their eyes were on the things of God, not on the things of man. And then at midnight, the doors swing open in the prison. And instead of putting himself first and just running out of jail at the first chance he gets, he refuses to leave the prison so that the jailer won't kill himself. Mm. So once again, Paul dies to himself. He serves somebody else instead of serving himself. So Paul dies by being falsely accused. He dies by being beaten and thrown into prison. He dies by staying in the jail when the doors swing open. And what's the result? The jailer and his entire family trust in Christ. Paul is vindicated when the magistrates come and they have to apologize to him. And a church is planted in Philippi that will go on to be one of Paul's greatest supporters in his missionary endeavors. Mm. Look at God. What if Paul, let me ask you something. What if Paul had sat in bitter anger in prison as he cursed the authorities under his breath and questioned God's goodness and thought, There's, why would God let something like this happen to me? What if Paul had taken his first chance to escape from prison as soon as the doors were open because he thought it might be his only chance to save himself? Mm. By sharing in Jesus' sufferings and by refusing to serve himself, he experienced an incredible dying and rising with Christ. By saying no to self and yes to God, Paul experienced far greater joy than he could have produced by grumbling over his circumstances. We see this all over the Bible. You see it in Joseph, right? Joseph over and over, sold into slavery by his brothers, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and thrown into jail, and he gets forgotten by the cupbearer for two years and he's left to rot in prison. Joseph dies, but what's the result? The result is that Joseph delivers his entire family from a famine by being placed in second in charge over Egypt, and he's reconciled with his brothers over and over. What glorious new life might you get to see as you deny yourself and take up your cross daily? What might be God doing in your life? I want to finish by helping you think practically about what it looks like to die and rise with Jesus daily. So what does this look like? Let me try to put a little more flesh on the bones here. One way that we die and rise with Jesus is by choosing to love. Choosing to love is always a decision to deny yourself and to take up your cross. And the decision to love almost always ends up costing more than we initially anticipate. When you get married, you take on the burden of loving your spouse. Some of your desires and preferences will have to die for them. But what you don't anticipate is having to love a spouse that suffers debilitating depression for a long season and you feel like you're pulling all the weight or loving a spouse that keeps on looking at pornography and you feel rejected and unloved 
or loving a spouse that's always criticizing you and using sharp words. It's at this point that we're tempted to recoil from the suffering and rethink our commitment to love. And sadly, many people do back out at this point. But 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. This is how Jesus loved us and still loves us. He loved us while we were yet sinners. As his followers, we share in a similar suffering as we die to self to love. And it's in this dying that Jesus works resurrection in us and in others. The gospel becomes more real to us and it becomes more real to those around us as it is acted out in our lives. Think about how the gospel is acted out in the example I was using in a marriage where you have a spouse that's always criticizing another and instead of responding with self-defense and bitterness, the other spouse continues to, to be patient and to show love even when they're being criticized. That's loving like Christ. Amen. That's loving while we were yet sinners. Mm. Paul said in, in 2 Corinthians 4, 11 and 12, he was writing to the Corinthians about how they were suffering. It was, it was causing suffering in their lives to continue preaching the gospel and bringing the gospel to them because they were being persecuted. And he said, we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. And then listen to this. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Can you say that in your life, like in your marriage, in your relationship with your kids, in your relationship with your coworkers? On, death is at work in me, but life in you. As I die to myself, as I say no to self so that I can say yes to God and yes to love, life is at work in you. Amen. This is what the life of the disciple looks like. And again, this can only happen if Jesus is your treasure. Mm. If you think you need the perfect spouse and house to be happy, then you won't persevere in love. Come on, brother. You'll either throw in the towel or you'll be miserable and you'll start looking in places that you shouldn't for Come comfort. On, brother. Great. But if Jesus is your treasure, you know that as you die and rise with him, you are drawing near to him and you're becoming more like him. Mm. There's thousands of other small examples of how to die to self to choose to love. It could be initiating a conversation with the socially awkward person at work who's always sitting alone. Yeah, it's uncomfortable. Yeah, there's going to be awkward silence. But stepping into it to love them and die to yourself. Or turning off the football game because your children say, Daddy, I want to play. Come on now. Or sharing the gospel with a neighbor, even though you might get rejected. because, But you do it anyways because you love their soul more than you love yourself. Or offering to babysit the kids so that your wife can go have a night away. Mm. These are all ways that we deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus Amen. in the everyday stuff of life. Mm. I want to close by encouraging you to remember that you and I will fail at this. Okay? Mm. The point of this message and of this passage is not to load us with guilt about how far short we fall of Jesus' standard. Of course we fall short of Jesus' standard. We must remember all of this in the context of Jesus' cross. We love because he first loved us. We love others this way because Jesus has loved us this way and he continues to. He continues to love you 
even though you are a sinner, even though you sin. But we've been covered by the blood of Jesus, and He's changing us from the inside out. His patience has no end, and His mercies never fail. Have you been avoiding the cross or grumbling under the cross? I want to take some time now for you to pray where you are at and confess that to God, if that's you. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. We're going to get ready to close. But if you've been avoiding the cross or grumbling under the cross in your life, bring that to God. And remember that when we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's good. So lay those things at Jesus' feet this morning. Ask him to forgive you and commit to die to yourself. Christians are called to believe in Jesus' death and resurrection and to become like Jesus in his death and resurrection. Let's bow our heads for a moment and let's pray and then we're going to stand together and we're going to sing as we get ready to close out our time of worship. God, I thank you for your word. Jesus, we thank you so much for coming and laying down your life so that we could live, for dying so that we could live. Jesus, we praise you and we worship you as the lamb who was slain and who is alive forevermore. And Lord, we confess that we have fallen short in taking up our own crosses. And we pray that you would give us mercy and that you give us grace to help us to do that this week and in the weeks to come. Lord, expose ways in our lives in which we are holding on to our own self-will and not surrendering and submitting to you. And help us, give us the faith to know that, that God, in you there's life. As we take up our cross daily and follow you, that's where we find, find true and lasting life. Lord, I pray for anyone in this room who your spirit is at work in right now and they're questioning whether or not they've ever truly surrendered their lives to you, God. Don't let them keep putting it off. Holy Spirit, convict them right now. Draw them to you. Give them the gift of life, God. Cause them to be born again to a new and a living hope right here in this moment. God, we love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.